Hello, I'm Vlad Maximov, and welcome to the next installment of Euractiv's series on cohesion policy, where we explore the European Union's project to decrease the disparities between its regions and increase social, economic, and territorial cohesion. In this episode, we'll look at how the pandemic has affected the labor market, what we can expect from 2021, as well as the different tools the EU has to help countries to protect workplaces. Even though Greece has had some of the lower infection rates in the EU, its dependence on international tourism makes it particularly vulnerable to shocks triggered by travel restrictions and social distancing measures. The governor of the North Aegean region in the eastern Mediterranean, Konstantinos Mutsouris, said that they are waiting to see what will happen after the pandemic. The problem will be mainly after the pandemic. But as a general statement, labor and the tourism and all the income of this country has been severely affected by pandemic. You mentioned already that uh, a lot of people fear that the worst is yet to come in some ways, especially yes. for the economy. The problem of a lack of temporary jobs for students is something that I hear over and over again, because, you know, young people in the summer very often rely on the hospitality sector for temporary jobs. Do you think this is going to be a problem? Is, are you worried about this? It's going to be a problem, yes. It was a problem during last period of tourism, and it will be a problem for next year, for this year. Going back a little bit to, to looking into the future, there's now going to be a big chunk of money, uh, European support coming into the different EU countries to support the recovery from the pandemic. Of course, we have the Recovery and Resilience Facility, but also uh, REACT-EU. So a host of different new instruments that are supposed to be helping the regions recover. How do you see this coming year in terms of implementing these policies? And what are your plans for the near future? Well, if the money really arrives, because it's so bureaucratic, the system, we are long hearing that this money is coming. We don't see this money to around here, the funds. We are expecting to have it here. If we have it here, we know how to use it. We want to make some infrastructure works we want to make some roads for the good of the population for what they suffered from the migration problem of these years. Therefore, we're waiting for the money. North Aegean, a member of the Conference of the Peripheral Maritime Regions, was able to take advantage of the European Commission's early response to the pandemic that has changed the rules around cohesion to make more EU structural funds available for regions. We are distributing 40 million euros to small enterprises according to the income they lose, they lost. Uh, now we are at the phase of evaluating their proposal of these 3,800 enter small enterprises who have been asking for money. On Thursday, the European Investment Bank released its annual investment report which found that some 20% of European firms foresee a permanent reduction in employment, suggesting that a significant number of firms are quite pessimistic, actually, about their ability to bounce back once the pandemic recedes. We asked Deborah Ravoltella, the chief economist of the EIB, what public action do we need to ensure that employment rates do not continue to increase throughout the EU? 
in the long term, COVID is accelerating uh, a number of trends uh, that are present in the economy, and uh, particularly, I think, uh, the, the trend uh, related uh, to digitalization, and uh, it requires uh, some form of adaptation. Uh, in terms of uh, policies, uh, we have uh, to look at the uh, different angles. So if uh, we have the terms becoming more digital, we have to address the issue of digital skills gap that is present in the economy and do more in this direction in terms of financing that is lacking digital skills. And that will be quite some important also to unleash the potential benefits of the digital transition that are associated to the fact that the more digital skills, the more digital firms are also those that are generating more jobs, that are generating better jobs, and also they are the ones that see um, more positively, more with optimism, the uh, job content and the job generation content of the new digital technologies implementation. So to to really leverage for what is positive in terms of job creation of the digital transition, you need to invest in the digital skills up front. And this is a, an important uh, uh, role that the public policies can, can play. Then in terms of uh, policy support, I think uh, also coming out of, from uh, COVID, the objective shouldn't be only protecting every job, but a specific job, sorry, but, but generating, protecting the job. So um, it may be that the people get uh, reskilled or uh, moving at different kind of jobs. And that's a part of a period of uh, technological transformation of the economy and it's something that uh, may happen. And that's uh, again a call for the importance of uh, uh, reskilling and uh, public policies uh, are uh, have a role to play in uh, this uh, direction. Mm -hmm. You mentioned that, you know, the EU population lacks uh, digital skills and there's a really big uh, need for it. And I think one particular number really stood out to me is the 42% of the EU population lacks basic digital skills. So when we are talking about public investment into digital skills, we're really speaking about enormous investment. This is a huge part of our population. And so what I was wondering, um, in practical terms, how can this be achieved, especially combined with, um, you know, lending policies and investment policies? Because as a citizen, I would be wondering how I can take time off for further education while I'm trying to earn a living. Can you explain this a little bit better, what it means to be reskilling the population? So there are a number of interesting uh, um, challenges, but also the, the part of the opportunity of this COVID crisis that we have seen. So COVID forced massive reskilling already in terms of digital literacy. A lot of people have been kind of forced to learn a number of basic digital skills just because Teleworking has become uh, mandatory in uh, in uh, many countries. I think uh, some uh, basic digital literacy has already been taking place uh, due to COVID. 
One thing where, where I believe that more could be done is related to more formal training, if you want. And that's part of a big opportunity, and I'm not sure that it has been internalized in all the countries. It's related to the support that has been put in place in terms of social insurance schemes during the crisis. Short-term support measures have been put in place to help companies and people keep their jobs during the, the most acute part of the crisis. When it's translated in lower hours of work with social insurance contribution to compensate for that, so combining the social insurance contribution and immediate policy response with some retraining, also eventually done digital. In some countries it has been done, and I think it should be considered more and more going forward as an option. And this is valid both for, could come both for a requirement associated to the social insurance contribution or should the requirement from the companies that pushes and stimulates much more training when these schemes are put in place. Firms in Western Europe have been much faster to adopt digital technologies and job growth in recent years has been driven by higher skilled positions. Now, if we couple that with the effects of the pandemic, doesn't this risk to be a double blow for cohesion regions? who are already lagging behind and risk falling back even further. So I guess my question is, how can we help and how can European policies ensure that the combined impact of the pandemic and green and digital transitions does not increase territorial and social disparities even further? It's a very complex question to address Western and Northern Europe. We have faster uptake of digital technologies and also we see availability of digital skills, but at the same time, companies still complain for the lack of the skills. That was one of the constraints for the future development. And what was happening quite often, and we were working on this a couple of years ago, was to look at that this advanced digitalization of companies in Northern Western Europe very tight labor market and uh, an overall lack at the European level of uh, digital skills was also meaning uh, that uh, there was a lot of uh, intra-European migration uh, to compensate uh, for this uh, uh, lack of skills. So now there will be COVID will change many things and uh, I think it's uh, really difficult to, to predict how the equilibrium uh, will come at the end in terms of uh, intra-EU migration the teleworking uh, arrangements, uh, how much uh, physical location will be important for work. This is something that we don't attempt uh, to investigate because it's uh, too complex uh, to forecast as economists. But what we can say is uh, that definitely what we see, the number of regions that are particularly at risk are very much concentrated in uh, what we would call uh, cohesion regions. Uh, we look at uh, the um, regions at, at risk, and we do a mapping uh, that is based uh, on uh, the uh, jobs uh, at risk for digitalization, 
and the jobs at the risk for the climate transition. And we see that a big chunk is concentrated in Central Eastern Europe, and those are mostly regions uh, that uh, already have uh, structural issues uh, that are poorer, uh, that uh, they have been uh, less innovative, uh, that they are uh, regions uh, with more problems. Our uh, concern is to really look at uh, what can be done in this region in order uh, not to further accelerate uh, the gap. And there are a number of things that uh, we could think about. On the one side, in the very short term, if this region already lacks certain important kind of infrastructure that can be supportive in the short to long term, investing more on this can be a first step for the future at stake. And there are ways you can start accelerating the catch-ups in terms of infrastructure. But also you should select in which areas you move to have the strongest impact in terms of medium-term job creation. I make an example. In our study we see, and I go back to digitalization and digital companies, we end up seeing that where municipalities invest in digitalization and they are more prepared to deal with digital technologies, uh, you would see more digital firms. And we know that more digital firms are also the ones creating more jobs, etc. So while those are just a correlation, I think it's important to think about the opportunity of creating an environment that would attract that more dynamic part of the economy. I think that's a very powerful message because, you know, many fear that the digitalization and climate transitions will destroy jobs uh, just when Europe is trying to recover. And so perhaps this can be then instead looked at as an opportunity. Just to dwell a little bit on what you mentioned about municipalities and infrastructure investment, I, one particularly interesting part of the report for me was, you know, we are seeing an increase investment into infrastructure, in particular climate investment. 56% of municipalities said that they increased this investment. and But at the same time, two-thirds consider that this is uh, inadequate, that their investment has been inadequate over the last three years. So is there a link here with job creation? Is this really an opportunity to protect jobs as we move forward? It's important that the public investment doesn't fall a victim in the next years, as it was in the past. In the past, we have seen many times that following crisis, there is an initial stimulus in terms of fiscal support, the long-lasting problems of lack in certain areas, specifically in terms of public investment, should be addressed, and the crisis is an opportunity for doing that, but the commitment should last until the gaps are covered. Then if you have specific areas where investment is clearly missing and where you really see a gap, there are various ways in which you can do it in the short term, trying to maximize the job impact. The second thing is Try to accelerate this kind of investment that will have a return for the future. And there are, I think, two different 
element. Uh, one is uh, on the transportation side, the local transportation, uh, but also interregional transportation side. But uh, you may also have relocalization of uh, people working uh, far away from uh, where the company is, but they still need uh, to have the connection and the infrastructure to work uh, from uh, where they are. So this kind of investment can be important. The other elements that are quite important as impediment for investment for municipalities, the whole bureaucratic process around the infrastructure planning and public investment planning is a challenge for some of the municipalities. On climate specifically, we have been looking at a special topic. We have seen that um, Climate risk is a difficult concept for some municipality to understand what you really need to do and how to tackle the investment needs. What we have seen is that collaboration among municipalities. My last question would be looking into the future. Um, so we've talked about sort of what firms expect in terms of investment and what that might mean for jobs. I think the question on everyone's mind is, is the worst really yet to come? Uh, and we've seen that the rise in unemployment has been much lower than expected by some compared to even the fall in GDP. Does this mean that the job saving policies are working or is it just that the labor market is very slow to adjust to the new realities? And so we are going to see some of that unemployment rise in 2021 or perhaps even later. If you look at the, at the commission forecast in terms of unemployment, they actually see the peak of unemployment to be in 2021 still slightly growing now and then converging in 2022, but remaining around 8%, so relatively high levels. And how do you explain it? It's really on the fact of the massive policy support that we have seen so far. So we have been seeing that there's a massive use of short-term schemes that have managed, I think, very successfully to keep people attached to the job also, but with a reduction in the working times. But what we've seen is also that if you look at the hours worked in the third quarter, so when we have seen the recovery of the economy, so after during the summer, people started being very optimistic about COVID, I think the policy should really uh, start working in the direction of uh, protecting jobs, but not protecting a specific job. So there will be sectors, there will be segments where uh, maybe the post-COVID means a completely radical composition of the labor and the capital. And then uh, just uh, Trying to keep the status quo will not work in the medium to long term. So the ideal policy is really in those sectors to look at the um, way for skilling people and preparing them for new and different jobs. One of the exercises that the economists in my team were doing was to look at Google search data and uh, try to look at uh, the use of words like uh, associated to retraining for people during the crisis. 
and also looking at the words associated to unemployment. And what uh, we saw was uh, clearly the COVID impact had, uh, had an effect, so people were much more concerned about unemployment issues. But also there was uh, some uh, spike uh, in uh, uh, interest in looking uh, for training, but it was a very short lived. So the responsibility for all uh, to take a lead uh, in uh, adapting uh, to this uh, uh, transformation. Next, we spoke to Per Helmerson, the Deputy General Secretary of the European Trade Union, to ask whether the Commission's European Instrument for Temporary Support to Mitigate Unemployment Risks in an Emergency, rather a mouthful and better known as SURE, to ask whether the scheme, which allocated 90.3 billion euros in loans to member states, has been a success or a failure. Uh, some member states have already prolonged uh, their measures. And of course, it's important that the EU is uh, continuing to suspend the, the Stability and Growth Pact, uh, so there won't be any you know, uh, hawkish uh, behavior from, from the EU side on, on uh, public debt uh, in, in Europe. Uh, this is very important. But it's a bit too early to, to assess properly as the, as the money from shore was dispersed only a couple of months ago. But so far, I would say it has been a success as it has supported 18, I believe, 18 member states with, with uh, job retention schemes and, and similar schemes for the self-employed. Of course, we, we would like to have seen a more clear link between SURE and the European Pillar of Social Rights to help guide member states' uh, policies, for instance, to ensure the promotion of activation measures. Um, so I think it's important that the Commission, uh, in, in, after some time, will evaluate uh, this instrument and to consider the need to make it uh, structural, meaning that it would be would be there next time there is a crisis. Uh, there's also need to further discuss uh, the creation of a more permanent unemployment reinsurance scheme. We've talked about SURE, but SURE is just one of uh, the EU-level policy tools that has been utilized to respond to the crisis. The other one being uh, the so-called uh, CRE, the Coronavirus Response Investment Initiative. Uh, that modified the EU cohesion rules, um, freeing up some money that would have otherwise had to be sent back to Brussels. Have you heard anything about this? Yeah, I think I think uh, it has been helpful. I mean, cohesion policy uh, instruments uh, in general. Uh, the CRE was the, the first first cohesion policy tool implemented by the EU. I think the first, you know, instruments uh, of all. Uh, so that it was very quick, uh, I would say, and uh, which was helpful, of course. Uh, I mean, compared to the financial and economic crisis 10 years ago, um, this was more, more a better reaction, a more quick reaction. So it's, it's, it's helped uh, to... to to reprogram for pandemic measures and, and uh, you know, for health investments uh, such as uh, personal protective equipment, test equipment and, and ventilators, but also uh, to support uh, our members, especially health workers and, and of course, companies in financial difficulties. So, yes, it, it has make a, made a difference. Um, and again, I mean, uh, it, one can talk about what was is it enough? I would say it, it's not enough. This needs to continue because 
um, the, 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 the last crisis 10 years ago, uh, unfortunately left Europe with, after harsh austerity measures, left Europe with the huge inequalities, weak labor markets and public services, especially helping care services. So uh, while the CRE and other cohesion policy tool measures taken during the, the crisis are important to, to, you know, for the immediate crisis, but there is, of course, a need for, for more long-term investments in, in all this. Uh, and that's why the, the MFF and the Next Generation EU is so important. Well, one uh, tool on the Next Generation EU sort of toolbox, um, of course, the RRF, the Re- Recovery and Resilience Facility being uh, the biggest and most famous one, but there is also a cohesion tool in there called the React EU, which is supposed to act as the bridge between long-term cohesion objectives and the CRE, the short-term uh, measures we've had so far. So it promises to be more flexible and pr- also protect workplaces with a firepower of about $47.5 billion. However, some worry that the strings attached to the regulation are not strict enough and that governments might be able to spend this money in the wrong places. So, for example, your active Czechia reported in October that the government in Prague was actually planning to allocate 15% of its ReactEU funds to local sport clubs and uh, sports dressing rooms. And of course, we, we can argue whether that, that is the best way to spend the money. And even though they seem to have backpedaled on the, those plans, I think it's quite demonstrative um, what are uh, the potential downfalls of ReactEU. What's your take on that? The rules are more flexible and and. And in that sense, perhaps more less strict. Uh, but I think that's also necessary in order to quickly adapt and react to emergencies at national and regional level. But uh, React-EU also has a focus uh, and priorities on where the money should go. And that is, for instance, to, to less developed regions, healthcare systems, um, employment and companies, and the most deprived. Um, and for us, uh, the initiative has an important social component uh, components in the form of, um, of uh, support for national job retention schemes and, and also cross-border regions where we have a lot of frontier workers uh, hit hard by, by the crisis. Member states should involve social partners, so trade unions and employers, in, in, this, in, this, um, in the managing of, of this fund. What are your um, members telling you? Are we seeing this happen across Europe? Because we know sometimes, you know, Brussels wants to see one thing happen and then something else is happening on the ground. What, what are your members telling you? In most countries, consultations are taking place, but the quality of dialogue is, varies a lot uh, from country to country. Um, and we have actually put in place a real-time monitoring tool where our member organizations can report and update uh, on, on the consultations processes. Um, and the problems uh, reported to us are mostly about access to information, the timing of the consultations, um, the level of the interlocutors and the, and the real impact that this dialogue have on governmental decisions. So that it seems that the effectiveness of trade union involvement largely depends on the goodwill of governments themselves, rather than on established Practices, so we we want to create this established to establish these practices. Uh, we're actually calling for a binding rule to to hold social partners uh, consultations. It shouldn't only be, you know, an aim or recommendation to do it, but it should be a must. And we're not pushing for this because of self interest, because we want to sit by the table. Um, 
we, we do it because it makes economic sense. Uh, I mean, it's as shown again in the in the financial and economic crisis a decade decade ago. Uh, countries with the strong um, uh, social dialogue systems, strong social partners, they manage economic shocks and difficulties better than others, and it helps creating more inclusive and sustainable growth. So it's a win-win situation, and also. During the COVID pandemic, we have seen national emergency measures being more effective if they have been adopted and implemented by uh, social partners or together with uh, social partners. Well, and I also imagine that that would result in greater societal support. Um, and it also probably has more legitimacy. Well, let's hope that happens, even though, uh, as you said, uh, what we're seeing happening now um, and past experiences show that. It largely depends on the goodwill of government to do that. Um, you've mentioned the crisis well more than a decade ago. Well, that started more than a decade ago now. Um, one social group uh, hit particularly hard by that crisis were young people. Uh, and unfortunately, this is something we're seeing once again, that the unemployment levels of young people have uh, risen faster than the general population during the coronavirus as well. So once again, young people seem to be suffering more. And with the summer approaching, many worry that the usual summer jobs, the temporary summer jobs, will not be available that could support their income. Um, many young people are also on precarious and non-standard contracts, not covered by uh, these short-term schemes that we've been talking about. So uh, what should the EU countries be doing differently to protect young people? Basically, what should be done? Um, because clearly, whatever is being done now is insufficient. The pandemic uh, and its uh, social and economic repercussions have hit uh, young people particularly hard. For instance, in Spain in August last year, there was 44% of young people unemployed, 39% in Italy. Uh, around that, uh, a bit lower in Greece. Um, and the EU average now lies around 17.6% um, compared to 149 just before the pandemic hit. Uh, and this is because uh, young people are very often employed in precarious, non-standard and self-employed work. Uh, so they, they lost their jobs first in the crisis and they have not been covered by income compensation schemes or employment protection measures. So that's one. I mean, the first thing is that member states needs to make sure that all categories of workers are covered by by the support measures, including precarious and non-standard forms of work and, and self-employment, as I mentioned, because their uh, young people are overrepresented. Uh, there is also need, uh, I believe, to to improve the EU youth guarantee by introducing quality standards for for job offers that they should include fair wages, working conditions, and access to social protection. And the, the, the called the YES program, the Youth Employment Support Program, needs to be implemented. Uh, and again, these national recovery and resilience plans needs to, to focus on youth, where, where member states should develop specific recovery measures to, to fight youth unemployment and precariousness. Um, and also, just one more thing, that's, that is upcoming uh, soon uh, to be presented by the Commission is the action plan for the implementation of the European Pillar of Social Rights. And there we want to, of course, it should include measures to face the challenges of young people, such as access to the labour market and to social protection. 
Many hope that the European Pillar of Social Rights agenda will be advanced under the Portuguese presidency of the European Council, and we shall find out more after the Social Summit in Porto in May, which will focus on, and now I'm quoting, how to strengthen Europe's social dimension to meet the challenges of climate change and the digital transition in order to ensure equal opportunities for all and that no one is left behind. Well, that's certainly going to be a tall order. To find out more about the latest developments in cohesion, take a look at our regional policy coverage at euractive.com. This has been Vlad Maximov. Thank you for listening. And until next time. This podcast is part of Euractive's project, Let's Meet Cohesion Policy, a journey through regions, challenges, and success stories, funded by the European Union. This publication reflects only the views of the author. The European Commission is not responsible for any use that may be made of the information it contains.